Job chapter 32, and I'm going to just be reading verses 1 through 10. So, these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now, Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. And Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzai, answered and said, I am young in years, and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Again, Father, we pray in these brief moments that your spirit would be upon us to give us understanding and wisdom. Lord, this book of Job comes from a section in the scripture. It is wisdom literature. And so we pray you would increase our understanding in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I begin with a question for you this morning. What is double jeopardy? Double jeopardy. You heard of this before? It's the law that says you cannot pay for the same crime twice. If something's been paid for, then surely you cannot, at least legally according to the law, pay for it again. And this is not just the law in our land. It's also, I believe, bound up with the law courts in heaven. That when punishment has been issued, when it has been paid, it's as good as done. When the punishment has been paid for completely, you cannot be released to then be called back to pay for it a second time. Or in our case, when someone makes retribution for you, when someone pays your way, makes amends, the the formerly offended party can't just find you out on the street and say, hey, you, yeah, you, you still owe me. No, because it has been paid. To To force a second payment would be double jeopardy. That is what is the case then. So Christian, this morning, I would ask you, which sin is it that you need to pay for to appease the wrath of God this morning? The biblical answer is none. Jesus Christ bore on the cross, exchanging places with you. He bore our sin. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21. It says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Now hear this. That means for all the reasons that Job, a genuine believer, may suffer. He is not suffering in any way to pay for his sin. Now sure, somewhere 2,000 years later, Christ would bring the the payment for Job's sin. And from our vantage point, 2,000 years beyond Christ, Jesus has paid for ours. And it means that the prosperity lie will not help Job 
The prosperity gospel lie will not help Job. It will not help you or me. For if Job tithes more, if Job repents more, if Job is more giving, more loving, if he's kinder, if he's smarter, or even if he musters up more faith, it will not improve his situation one iota. His pain will remain. So friends, don't ever believe the lie that if you do better, God must instantly reward you by making your life better or taking away your suffering. No. If we are suffering, there could be many reasons we suffer, but none of them are going to be in the category of payment for our sin. For if that was the case, we're faced with double jeopardy. No, to help us think through why we suffer, there are many things, and I'd like to return to a couple biblical pictures. One is that God is our Father. And as a loving Father, He does discipline His children. He can allow suffering in our lives to bring us to an end of ourselves, to keep us from loving the things of the earth. This is true because Hebrews chapter 12 affirms this reality. But even today, uh, and if you need to look this up and spend more time reflecting on this, you can look at Job 36 verses 5 through 12 and see that at play. But further, the reasons that we can suffer is because the fall has dramatically touched us in all regards. So that everything faces corruption and decay. Tim recently preached on this. And if you missed that, you should go back and catch it. Where he preached from Romans chapter 8 a few weeks ago. um, About how all creation has faced corruption. And our bodies are waiting eagerly for the day of redemption. Further, there is the reality that at times the effects of sin may bring trials into our life. There is a sense that... Even though our sin is paid for on the cross, there is a reality that we can face the ongoing earthly consequences for our sin. This is true. But then as we've been unpacking here in the book of Job, there's also the truth being revealed to us that suffering for the Christian believer may be because God's glory is at stake in the middle of it. Will the man or woman Remain trusting in God even when it means personal heartache and trial and pain. Now Elihu, this new character that we are introduced to here today, he will prod Job along to see that God is both good and glorious. And therefore he should not be charged with wrongdoing in all that is happening. Elihu is given four speeches and two of them are rather lengthy. And my hope this morning, I hope you understand, my goal is is not to turn over every rock and leaf here, okay? My goal is almost like a tour guide in a national park to kind of go along the guided path and stop at just a couple points and say, look at the vista, look at the mountain range, okay? That's all we're simply doing. Try to give some explanation to this larger section. So chapters 32 through 33... What we see, if we want to summarize it perhaps, is an answer to Job's suffering comes by seeing God's way is higher than man's way. Now, if you read this section in advance, you may not have found your, you may have found yourself a, a bit like me. You're a bit puzzled. If you're reading through the section about Elihu, you're wondering, what box do I put this guy in? We all like to put people in various categories and boxes. And even as we're reading through scripture, we're saying, is a good guy? Is a bad guy? What, how do I put him? What do I do with him? And many Christians are not sure, but I sense when reading him 
that we cannot simply say he is the same as the three friends, same as the three amigos, that he, he actually pits himself at the very beginning of his speech against the three friends. I would argue that while he speaks, sometimes brashly, sometimes he speaks with anger, that mostly we should view him positively. And here's why. Chapter 32 at verse 2 that we read earlier, he's given a genealogy. I think that that gives him a little bit of weight, the fact that he has a genealogy. But further, he's given four speeches, four uninterrupted speeches, by the way. And it may be that he is functioning here as a bit of a warm-up to God speaking. Now, at the very end of this book, God will have some rebuking. He will have some correcting. He's going to look at Job's three friends and he's going to say, I've got some words for you. And he's going to look at Job even, who was blameless, and say, I I need to correct some of your understanding. But he says nothing to Elihu. And and so for this reason, I, I sense that Elihu, the way he's functioning in this book, is almost like a John the Baptist. Sort of a forerunner to when God's going to show up in chapter 38 and speak. That Elihu's sort of preparing the way of the Lord. And he does so essentially by calling us and Job to repent, to humble himself, for God will soon speak. And even as God will speak, Elihu makes it clear, I must speak. And the words I speak, he says, are necessary. And we have to be careful because even as he makes it clear on one hand, he says, I'm here to give my opinion. Yet in chapter 33, he wants us to begin to catch the drift that God himself has given him this breath to speak these specific words. So see here in chapter 32 at verse 14, where he says, he, meaning God has not directed his words against me and I will not answer him with your speeches. In other words, Elihu's making it clear. I'm not going to go around and around the merry-go-round as you have saying the same old yada, yada, yada that you three have been telling Job. Elihu says, I've got something new to share with you. What's new? Well, for starters, Elihu doesn't get mad at Job for proclaiming he's righteous. Remember the three friends? They're upset with Job because Job's claiming he's blameless and they're saying you're lying. Elihu, on the other hand, he's not going to get upset at Job for proclaiming he's righteous or proclaiming that he's blameless. No. Elihu is clearly in a different mode. Catch this. He is upset with Job because Job has judged himself righteous, but at the same time has begun to judge God as not being righteous in this matter, as not dealing justly. So it's a matter of how Job is beginning to, through his speeches, view God himself. Perhaps if Job had said something like, I know I'm in the right. I know I've been blameless. I haven't done some great sin to deserve all this, but I know that God is also in the right. And whatever God is doing, even though I don't see the chapter one, I don't know what's going on behind the scenes. I'm going to trust and remain that God has his purposes and his plans in all of my suffering. I think Elihu's speech wouldn't be in this book. Look at chapter 33 verses 8 through 13. Where we, where we see Elihu saying, surely you have spoken in my ears and I have heard the sound of your words. You say, here's, he's quoting Job. I am pure without transgression. I am clean and there is no iniquity in me. Now here's the turn. Behold, he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. 
So chapter 33, verse 8, Job's essentially saying, I'm pure, I'm clean. And he says, you may feel God is against you, Job, but we know from the beginning how much God loves Job. Do you remember at the beginning when God's speaking with the accuser, with Satan, he says, have you considered my Job? No, the the Lord God says this because he is honoring Job. He loves Job. He thinks much of Job. Have you considered my servant? There's none like him. And yet Elihu makes it clear. It's a theme that's been running through this theme of this whole book. Is God is greater than man, verse 12. So that here the message that we get from Elihu is that not Job is not suffering because of his sin, but Job's suffering has led him to sin. And do you see the difference? It's not that Job is suffering because of sin. It's that in his suffering, it's led him to the place and position where now he is sinned by proclaiming wrong about God above. Then in verses 14 through 30, Elihu wants Job and the three friends to know that God is not ignoring them, but he does speak. So he speaks in many ways to us. He says, essentially, he speaks through dreams, second through various warnings. Lastly, and more to the point, God speaks using pain and heartache. So if you're in chapter 33, look at verse 19. He says, man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones. Okay. So what what does that mean? Well, Elihu's making the point here that our pain has a way of waking us up so that we hear God. Our pain, let me say it again. Our pain has a way of waking us up. And this is a great lesson that lands on us for both the believer and the non-believer alike. So Christian, God may use pain in your life to help wake you up from a slumber, to snap you out of a trance that the world may have on you. And to my friends here who are, have not yet trust in this Jesus that we speak about here from the Bible, I, I would love for you to consider if God may be using pain in your life to call you to him. If the pain of physical pain, health issues, the pain of depression, of strife, maybe the pain of financial hardship for some or loneliness or past abuse, all of these are forms of suffering that God can use to speak loudly into your life. Why? Because you need redemption. Pain screams out to us saying, this is wrong and it must be redeemed. So here's the question. If my pain must be redeemed, how can it ever be redeemed? How can it be flipped around and made right? Well, the gospel proclaims to us, if it must be undone, it can only be undone if what Jesus did to bring us from an earth filled with pain to a heavenly sense of joy and reality is true. That's the only way that this pain will ever be undone. Friend, think of this on your bed tonight. When life is good, humanity doesn't desire God. When things are going really well in your life, we don't need to think of the Lord. But when pain comes in, that's when life is tough and God is speaking to us in the pain. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, the human spirit will not even begin to try to surrender self-will as long as everything seems to be well. Now, error and sin both have this property that the deeper that they are, the less their victim suspects their existence. They are masked evil. 
Pain is unmasked, unmistakable evil. Every man knows something is wrong when he is being hurt. We can rest contentedly in our sins, but pain insists upon being attended to. Because God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You catch what Lewis is saying? He's saying when things are going well and we're experiencing pleasures in life, God's whispering to you. This pleasure that you're enjoying, this is just a faint little whisper of what heaven will be like. But when pain enters into your life, God's shouting, wake up, wake up. This is not all there is. One day, this will all be redeemed. Now, Elihu recognizes this truth, and he calls on Job's behalf, calling for a mediator, which is what we said last week that Job longed for. Job longed for this mediator, one who would stand, and we said that Jesus Christ is our mediator. And here, Elihu is at least calling anyone, anyone, An angel, a mediator, someone who can come and fight for Job. Someone in the court of heaven who can push back on the accuser. Then we see in chapter 33, verses 31 through 33, where he says, Pay attention, Job. Listen to me. Be silent, and I will speak. If you have any words, answer me. Speak, for I desire to, listen, justify you. If not, listen to me. Be silent and I will teach you wisdom. Amazingly here, Elihu, this is where he's definitely different than the three friends. He's not looking to condemn Job by saying, Job, we know you've got some secret sin. Come on out. Tell us what you've done wrong. No, he's saying, I'm here to actually justify you because I do believe you're a blameless man. And and then chapter 34, we, we come to the fact that God does run the world justly. The way God does work in the world is right, is good. The second speech which spans all of chapter 34. It's the issue of the justice and goodness of God. Look at 34 verses 10 through 11, where we hear Elihu say, Therefore hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man he will repay him, and according to his ways he will make it befall him. Uh, The goodness uh, of God is so bound up with his character That for God not to be just and righteous is for God not to be God. Do you see that? So it leads Elihu in verse 12 where he says, Of a truth, God will not do wickedly and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Who gave him charge over the earth and who laid on him the whole world? If he should set his heart to it and gather himself his spirit um, and his breath, All flesh would perish together, and a man would return to dust. So Elihu here, he's making it clear that God can do no wrong in this garden. And and a key central point to catch is, this is because God is God. And, And we would do wrong if we treat God as though he acts the same way as sinful man does. We may not understand what the Lord is always up to, but the moment we infer, we see evil man, and the moment we say, ah, he must be like that, is a moment that we're saying God's not really God. No, Elihu's anger stems not from calling Job a sinner, but for somehow seeing that Job is beginning to claim that God has sinned or done wrong in all of this. And so this is where we see at verse 17, shall, in, shall one who hates justice govern, will you condemn him, meaning God, who is righteous and mighty? No, Job, don't do that. 
The following verses here, they're a little bit tricky to sort out, but, but Elihu's intensity uh, makes it difficult for us as the readers. We want, to, we want to join in with his argument at times, and other times we pull back a bit, but parts we, we say are true and right, others we feel a little bit less sure about. But suffice it to say that in verses 18 through 30, he makes it clear that God deals justly. He has no favorites. He's truly able to sort out the intentions of everyone he sees their ways clearly and that in his judgment, he cannot be condemned. If, 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 if he delays, if God delays in his judgment and is quiet, it is because the Lord has his purposes. We we cannot condemn him. Verse 29. So Job must come to a place where he says, "I, I speak about things I don't really get. That's where Job must come to. This is chapter 34 at, at verse 35. Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without insight. So in other words, Elihu's just trying to make it clear. Job, you're talking about stuff you don't get. You know, like a child speaks sometimes and you just say, I'd like to explain this to you, but you're four years old and you're just not going to get it. I think that's kind of Elihu's way of saying, you, you're just not going to, you're speaking about stuff you don't know. And this brings us to 35. Where we see that God is far above us and he will not listen when we summon, summon him to court. We cannot demand of the Lord. Um, and, and, and if he does respond to us, it's not because he owes us. It's because he's decided to come in. Um, recall previously where Job kind of, I set it up as the courtroom scene and Job is kind of laying out his case. I think Elihu's responding here saying, I know you want to call God in as a witness, but you, you don't get to boss God to come and force him to come in here and make any sort of statement or, or declare anything. He will show up when he wants to. He will declare what he wants when it's his time. And so chapter 35, we're faced again with the issue of the prosperity gospel again. The question being, if I'm good, will God bless me? And the prosperity gospel responds, yes, God will bless you right here and right now. While the true gospel says, yes, God will bless you, but in his timing, not necessarily right here and right now. More likely when you are with him in glory. In verses 1 through 4, Job is basically, uh, we see him saying, if I had just been a great sinner, I would be in the same boat. So why not just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die? That sort of way of thinking. Job is, uh, Elihu's unpacking Job's way of thinking where he's like, look, if I just sinned greatly, it doesn't matter. I'd be in this exact same boat. And I think Elihu's responding and saying, no, you don't understand how this works. You, you might be in the same suffering right now, but friend, you'd be in a much worse position eternally if you decided to live as the wicked. No, Job, in this you are wrong. You'd be in a worse position. In verses 9 through 16, Elihu is saying, essentially, some are not really heard when crying out in their suffering because they're merely cries of anguish and not really crying out to God for hope and redemption. So don't think, Job, that the Lord can't hear you. He can hear you. And he, at the same time, doesn't have to answer you. And it is possible, Job, that some of your cries and your bemoaning have just been going out but not really going up. Does that make sense? And, and this kind of hit me. I began to think, how often is it, Thomas, that what you do is you merely are venting and you're bemoaning to fellow Christians or to your spouse or to someone else? But how often are your cries of anguish rather needing to go up? Not just out, but up. And Job, is it possible that some of your cries and anguish have just been out to these three friends and not really truly up to God? 
Well, then we come to the fourth and the final speech of Elihu in chapters 36 to 37. Here, a few great insights are made prior to launching into the grandeur of God. First, he, he seems to essentially be responding to what Job had said regarding the wicked earlier, that indeed there is judgment for the wicked who don't repent, but also, Job, be careful because uh, it, you could become like one of the Pharisees who uses your righteousness to merely just look down on others. So see chapter 36 at verse 17 and 18 where he says, But you are full of judgment on the wicked. Judgment and justice seize you. Now he says, Beware, lest wrath entice you into scoffing, and let not the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. You see that? No, rather, verse 21, he says, Take care, Job, that you don't turn yourself towards iniquity. Don't be like the Pharisee who then uses your position of blamelessness to look down on and try to quickly kindle judgment on the wicked. One of the main emphasis of Elihu we hear is the resounding theme of verses 24 through 26. Here's where we begin to see the grandeur of God. He says, remember to extol his work, which men have sung, and all mankind has looked on it. Man beholds it from afar. Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. He's saying, we, we know some things about God, but we don't nearly have them figured out. God is grand, he's wise, he's powerful. The greater the, his creation, the greater he is. So Elihu launches into a runner-up of what God will speak regarding the power of God and the works of God. And this is what we see in verses 27 through 33, where he says, For he draws up the drops of water, they distill his mist in the rain, at which the skies pour down and drops on mankind abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds and the thunderings of his pavilion? Behold, he scatters his lightning about him, and he covers the roots of the sea. For by these he judges peoples, and he gives food in abundance, and he covers his hands with the lightning, and he commands it to strike the mark, and, it, and its crashing declares his presence, and the cattle also declare, declare that he rises. So pause. Pause here. Elihu, he, he will mention thunder and lightning and snow. Of course, we've recently had snow up here. But, but just set those things aside for a minute and just consider for a second the rain, the simple rain. Do you understand what it takes to get a single drop of rain to fall? To turn our cascades into a rainforest? Do you understand what it takes for one cedar tree out here on the property to grow up 100, 125 feet? I'm not even going to get into what how much, it takes 30 gallons per day for one of these cedar trees to drink it up. And I'm not going to take talk about what it takes to actually pump that water up 125 feet. Just consider the rain for a minute. You know what? I've had a lot of frustrations about the weather. Because for all of our radar and all the apps I have and all the access to information... It's incredible to me that we can't figure out when it's exactly going to be raining or not. Uh, my family and I, we were just a couple days ago down in the Redwoods, and I kept looking for a window when we could go out and go to the beach or go hiking, and the rain just kept coming, and it kept coming. It said 100%, 100%, 100%, and then the next thing you know, blue skies, and 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 uh, it's beautiful, and the sun's pouring through. And I'm looking, it says 100%, and it's blue skies. 
No, 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 no. You know the most accurate weather predicting device was found by me over in Ireland when I was in Dublin at the oldest restaurant there in Dublin. I went over and there was this string and it was tied, uh, a rock was tied to the string. Um, Rod's laughing, he knows. And, and it says, hey, if the rock is wet, it's raining. And, and if the rock is dry, it's not raining. If there's a shadow on the ground of the rock, it's sunny. And if you can't see the rock, it's foggy. And my favorite, if there's no rock, a tornado has happened. So, but, but you just sit back and you think, if we can't figure out this, how, how can we make sense of God? John Piper was reflecting, and, and I think he, he, he wrote this regarding an earlier piece in Job. But he, but he was reflecting on the rain, and I thought, this is worth sharing with you all. Because from Job's position, he's out there, you know, in the east. It's more of a desert-like climate. We're used to 80 inches, but there, not so much. Do you know what it takes for a drop of rain to hit Job? Uh, here's a man who needs the grass to grow so his flocks could eat off of the grass. And, and, and Piper says, he's reflecting, he says, water will come out of the clear blue sky. Well, not exactly. Water will have to be carried in the sky from the Mediterranean Sea over 100 miles and then be poured out from the sky onto the fields. Carried? How much does it weigh? Well, if one inch of rain falls on one square mile of farmland during the night, that would be 27 million cubic feet of water, which is 206 million gallons, which is 1,650,501,280 pounds of water. That's heavy. So how does it get up in the sky and stay up there if it's so heavy? Well, that's by evaporation. Really? That's a nice word. What does it mean? Well, it means that the water sort of stops being water for a while so it can go up and not down. Oh, I see. Well, then how does it get down? Well, condensation happens. What's that? Water sort of becomes water again by gathering around little dust particles that are one one hundredth of a thousandth of a centimeter wide. That's really small. Yeah, but what about the salt? Salt? Well, yeah. You know salt kills vegetation. You can't bring the salt with it. Oh, don't worry. The salt's been taken out. Oh, so the sky picks up a billion pounds of water from the sea, takes, leaves the salt, and then carries it for 300 miles and then dumps it on the farm? Well, it doesn't dump it, you see, because if it dumped a billion pounds of water on the farm, the wheat would be crushed. So the sky dribbles a billion pounds of water down in little drops. And they have to be big enough to fall one mile without evaporating, but small enough to not crush the wheat stalks. So how do all these microscopic specks of water that weigh a billion pounds get heavy enough to fall? It's called coalescence. What's that? It means specks of water start bumping into each other and join up and get bigger and bigger. And when they're big enough, they fall. Just like that? Well, not exactly, because there's this thing called electric fields that must be present. Well, how does that work? Never mind. <laughs> Just take my word for it. Church, you and I, we can't really fathom what goes into one drop of water falling out of the sky. Why do you think we can fully comprehend what the Lord is up to when you're suffering? A reasonable answer is that we can't. So then this is calling for us with our friends when they're suffering and we're walking with them in suffering or we ourselves are suffering. There's a calling on us to just remain humble. Trusting that God is up to far more than you and I will ever comprehend. And someday when we're with him in glory, I imagine a lot of things are going to click. And we'll say, thank you, Lord, for every moment of suffering. And thank you, Lord, for redeeming every moment of suffering. And I think this is where this lands 
In chapter 37, the final verses here, look at verse 21 through 24. And now, no one looks on the light when it is bright in the skies and when the wind has passed or cleared them. Out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed with awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He's great in power. Justice and abundant righteousness he will not violate. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. Now, of all the verses that you and I put on our fridge, or the verses that I like to put on the mirror in the bathroom to remind myself of certain things, why don't you put this verse, verse 23, up on the, on the fridge? The Almighty, we can't find him. He's great in power. Justice and abundant righteousness, he will not violate. Friends, we can't understand all the Lord is up to. We can't even find him. The Lord is powerful, and therefore we humble ourselves in fear rather than considering ourselves wise in conceit and arrogance. And so we see here that Job is leading us to see uh, through Elihu's speech that God's goodness and God's glory exceed our understanding. So let me quickly summarize and close here. Elihu's first speech, he makes it clear that God will speak. That he is using Elihu to communicate a word to Job and the three friends. And that God will speak through our suffering. He shouts to us in our pain. And that while we wonder, is God right in all this? Elihu's second speech reminds the readers, reminds you and I, that God is just. He's not going to do wicked. By his very nature, God, he is in the right. This pushes back on whether or not we should remain living for the Lord even when suffering comes. No, no, no. To live wickedly will not end us up in a better position or better place through our suffering. No, it will only add to the suffering of our family, our friends, and ourselves. And finally, and key in all this is, if we can't understand the most basic principles of our lives, like the weather, like the rain, how can we ever make grand sweeping judgments or statements about our suffering? No. Rather, we should behold our God. We should behold His glory. We should gaze upon Him, trusting that He is good, that He is wise, glorious, and trustworthy. And that's where we'll end. Would you pray with me? Father, we want to trust you in the daytime. When things are well, when the pleasures of life are abundant, it's easy to ignore you, but we pray that those things will turn our gaze to you as well. And when it's night, when we're not seeing our way out of the suffering when we cannot make sense of what we experience when you shout to us in our pain would we hear and say you are up to things that we do not fully understand and with humility would we trust waiting for that day even if it's the day that we join you in eternity for our redemption we ask in jesus name amen